This is the Dice Tower Network, adding games to your wish list since 2005. The home of smart people, insightful board gaming commentary, and Luke Hector. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. The Broken Meeple, Season 2, Episode 4, 2016. Welcome to The Broken Meeple, a show devoted to board and card games. Today, it's all about reflecting on 2016. Yes, I know it wasn't a great year for many, but it was a interesting year, shall we say, for board games. And today, I give you my thoughts on the year as a whole, as well as my top 10 of 2016. Hello everyone, Happy New Year. Yes, we're into 2017 right now, which means a whole new year of thousands of board games and far too much to catch up with, as it seems to be always the case. But 2016, I know for a lot of people, particularly in the UK and also in the US as well, it wasn't the best year that people want to reflect on. But from the board game perspective, it was still a pretty half-decent year for board games, but not I will say not my favourite. It wasn't, I wasn't bowled over by this year as in previous times and I must admit I still think my absolute favourite periods for board games are probably still 2011 and 2012. I think those two years were just solid when it came to board game releases. 2013, 14 and 15 were okay. I think 2013 was pretty good and then I think it's dwindled a bit over time I don't know maybe it's just because we're getting so many games out and now it's difficult to find anything new and innovative or maybe we're just waiting for that year where suddenly a new type of mechanic or a new piece of technology brings games into the forefront again I'm still waiting for apps to really take over I don't think they've been introduced quite as much as I would like so far I mean we've had XCOM we've had Mansions of Madness we've had World of Yoho we've had a very few games that use apps we need more We do need more, and I do look forward to some in 2017 that are going to incorporate those, but maybe a little bit more on that later. But 2016 was still a fun year for conventions, definitely. The UK Games Expo upgraded its space for exhibitors by renting out the NEC Centre in Birmingham now. So we're not just in the Hilton Hotel, we're now in the NEC Centre, and that was such an improvement. Just to have that extra space to walk around, even on crowded days, it wasn't like you couldn't get from place A to place B. You didn't have to barge past people, it wasn't completely crammed, even on a Saturday. It was fantastic this year and I cannot wait for 2017's version which will have even more space and even more fine tuning to some of the issues that did arise during it because you know, no convention is perfect. But oh yes, that was a very good convention and I will be going to this one every year without fail. Unfortunately, um, I well, I'll get on to the unfortunate bit later. Essen 2016 was, again, a really good laugh. That one certainly knackered me out for the entire week, I must admit. But it was great fun to walk around that convention and see all the new stuff coming out, meet lots of people from different countries who listen to the podcast and read the reviews, and also meet the Dice Tower crew, where I got to help out on their booth for quite a long time, particularly on the Sunday, and chat with Sam, Z, Eric, Jason, Tom, and all the other people who came by the booth and said hi. Certainly the biggest, well, the biggest highlight, certainly the most shocking highlight was having a guy come to the booth, getting the others to sign their copy of Nothing Personal, and then asking me if I could sign it as an, as like another signature because I was there. And it's like, excuse me? What? The, you know, that was a first. That may never happen to me ever again, but... I will certainly remember that one moment where someone asked me to sign a game. Just this lowly podcaster from UK, you know, just to actually sign a game. I'm sure for a lot of people they've done it millions of times, but hey, I'm going to take this one and cherish it. The convention itself was great. The unfortunate bit is that I will most likely, unless somebody brings up a miracle in the near future will not be attending Essen for 2017. It's, I got a bit distracted and, you know, forgot to do the intelligent thing of booking a hotel miles in advance. And now there's only so many left and they're all really expensive. 
And to be fair, Germany is now sticking, you know, sticking up the prices of their hotels around Essen time because they're not thick. They know that the trade fair is a huge money-making opportunity. And so all the hotels have premium prices and it gets even more crowded and the flights in there are more expensive. And it's just get it got to a point where when I was trying to book a place a couple of weeks ago that it was just too much, too much money for the experience i mean the experience is still great fun and if you get a chance to go to western i suggest you at least try it especially if it's your first time but i've done it twice now i'm happy to skip a year i'll probably wait until this one finishes and then really far in advance book a 2018 visit to essen but i think with the games expo with other conventions i'm going to go to this year like handycon in a couple of weeks time uh, aircon probably manacon maybe midcon who knows I think I'm pretty set for conventions, and I'm going to stick to the UK, I think, this year. So I'll take a breather from Essen for 2017, unless somebody happens to throw a miracle my way, which means I can get there without having too much hassle thrown at me. So it's 95% certain I won't be at Essen, but you never know, miracles can happen. And the other convention highlight was AirCon, A-I-R-E-Con. This was held up in Bradford by a Facebook personality you might know called Mark Cook. And he and his friends and that host basically a gathering of friends-style convention up in Bradford. It took place over a, I think it was a Saturday and Sunday. And it's basically go there and play games. But there's a bring and buy, there's food, drink, there's a few exhibitors there showing off their games. There's a library that you can just get a game from, you know, put a deposit down and go and play it. And some events on. And it was particularly interesting for me when I tried it because uh, my mates from the Polyhedron Collider and uh, Breacher18.com and a few others, you know, basically got together and did this big podcast where we went over our, like, top five hated games or something. You know, I mean, it sounds negative, but we were having such a laugh doing it. It's certainly not a family-friendly broadcast, I will warn you, because unfortunately I was not in charge of it, so you will see a few swear words thrown out, maybe the odd innuendos here and there. But if you want to go to Polyhedron Glider's uh, website and look up old podcasts, then you'll probably find the actual hosted file for it there. Failing that, I did put a link on my blog page somewhere along the way. I might have even hosted it on my actual RSS feed, so maybe some of you have already heard it. But I suggest you have a look back to about October 2016 and see where that podcast arose from, because it was a hilarious time, and I certainly am up for doing any shared podcast that anybody has in mind for things like the UK Games Expo and other conventions as well. I think it's just such a laugh to do them. 2016 also saw some changes for the podcast and the blog in general. I finally managed to upgrade myself to the point where I could do a top 100 games, not just top 75, and I enjoyed doing that through the period of August. I certainly look forward to be updating that for 2017. Same again, when I get to my four-year anniversary, I will do the top 100 again. However, there might be a bit of a change to the format. Oh. Well, I'll get to that in just a second, because one of the other things that I did was upgrade my podcast equipment. For ages, I'd been using a, I think it was a Sennheiser G30, something, I can't remember, but, you know, a, basically a headset with a microphone to do this podcast. And that works up to a point, but you can only get the quality so high speaking into a headset. So what I did was uh, I spent a bit of money and invested in some high-quality stuff from Rode. They do lots of really good uh, microphone-style equipment, and I bought myself a big desk clamp, a big Rode podcaster microphone, a shock mount, you know, all the sort of trimmings for using for a decent podcast. And now, certainly since I started Season 2 back in October time, I feel that the audio quality has jumped up quite a bit bit certainly i'm getting a lot of positive feedback saying that the the quality has improved so i'm glad that season two is getting off to a good start and i hope that if there is any way i can tweak the quality even more in the future i will do so although i am not an audiophile by any means so i think it will just have to be a small things here and there unless something glaringly obvious suddenly gets thrown in my face eventually And the very last thing for 2016 was literally at the end of December, I made an order. Basically, I set up a Patreon campaign at the start of October and I asked people to, you know, donate to getting this podcast supported and potentially get into video. Well, it met with 
some minor success, but not a lot of people have signed up to it, although that Patreon campaign is still going, so listen to the end of this episode to find out more details on that. And I certainly do urge, you know, that if anybody can even just spare something like, you know, a dollar a month, you know, just to help with hosting fees and, you know, setup fees and stuff, that would be greatly appreciated. But the original reason I set it up was so that I could invest in some video equipment. However, if I relied solely on the Patreon campaign, I would never be into video, I suspect. So what I did was that I took a bit of cash out of my own pocket and decided I was going to invest in some video equipment to get myself back on the YouTube channel. Now, obviously, I need you know help on Patreon to sort of pay that off. But what I'll probably do is that I'll readjust the goals that I had on that campaign to, for other things. Like, for example, you know, upgrading the video equipment, you know, to get more people on the show. I want to get guests on from game clubs and that. And obviously, I need more microphones to do that. And that's more money. At the moment, I've got essentially a solo setup. But then also, I want to do other things for the blog. Like, it would be nice to get off the blogger platform at some point and upgrade to a proper, full-functioning website. Of course, I haven't got the time or the expertise to design an entire website outside of Blogger, so I would need to pay someone to do that, and obviously a Patreon campaign would go a long way to help me fund a nice-looking website. And of course, I'll try and think of some other goals as well. But all the video equipment has arrived. I've got a nice Canon camera, I've got another Rode microphone, shotgun mic, I've got tripods, I've got dim lighters, you know, the LED things. I am soon to be ready to get my podcast up and running as a video channel again. Some of you may already be aware that I have a YouTube channel, except that it's been dormant for a good year, year and a half, because the video quality that I could get at my old flat was not really up to par, and I had to basically call it a day. But I left it dormant, and I left the videos up there. What I want to do is I want to resurrect, effectively, season two of the YouTube channel. And of course, that means doing video reviews, it means doing uh, possibly rules videos, but I'm a little bit hesitant to do that, I'll explain in a minute. But, you know, other types of videos as well, certainly top 10 lists I'd like to do on video rather than on podcast format, and just generally get back on that channel, because let's face it, most people tend to know you exist by video, and video allows me to do more clever stuff with imagery and just general, you know, passionate talking about top 10 lists and games in general. People like to be able to view it rather than listen to it on the whole. Now that doesn't mean that I'm abandoning the podcast. The podcast will still happen in the same format that I was talking about for season two. You just might notice that top 10 lists sort of migrate to video for a start and so might the reviews. But certainly I'll do things like first impressions, I'll do discussion topics, I'll do all sorts of other things with the podcast and I will keep that going just as well as I have been now. Here's the treat though for it, I did mention that I would maybe change the format for the top 100. Well, regardless of whether the Dice Tower meet their fundraising goal or not, I will be, if I can get this video equipment working and up and running in the next month or so, because let's face it, I've got the equipment, I just need to play with it and have a tinker with it and do some test videos, but I'm hoping at some point by February I should be able to be up and running with video reviews. If I can get this all up and running and it's all successful, I will do my top 100 this year on video. So I will do the entire thing. I'll do like 10 videos, you know, 10 at a time. I'll be able to show games off if I've got them in my collection or show imagery. It'll look so much better than trying to do 10 separate podcasts. Now, if people want to, you know, really stick to podcast rather than video, I might do what the Dice Tower do. And for certain episodes, I will, you know, like certain videos, I will do them in audio format and put them on the podcast itself. So basically, I'll just take the audio from the video and put it as an episode or a side episode, maybe a side channel. I don't know. I'll figure something out. But it depends whether people want that. If people are happy just to watch the video, then fine, go watch the video. They're not going to be long videos. A top 10 might be slightly longer, maybe like 20, 30 minutes. But a typical review is only going to be about 10 minutes or so. I will be trying to keep them relatively short because obviously not everybody has the time to watch hour long videos all the time on YouTube, especially if you're like me and watch all the Dice Tower top 10 on a regular basis. So that that's stuff to look forward to for 2017. Anyway, we're talking about 2016 here, and there were not as many like fantastic games as I would have liked for this year, but there certainly were some gems, and I'm going to go over my top 10 this episode. So let's make a start and reflect on releases for 2016.
Okay, top 10 best for the year. Now, a couple of caveats with this. Firstly, there were a lot of releases this year, and I've had to deal with moving house, I've had to deal with some other personal issues to deal with. You know, there's been a lot to distract me this year, on top of everything else, so I have not played every single game from 2016. But then again, neither have you. Okay, yeah, to be honest, even without the distractions, I wouldn't be able to play every game from 2016. It's getting ridiculous now. The amount of games that get released each year is just mind-boggling how it's done. And, of course, one flaw that I see with that is that I feel a lot of games get chucked out without fine-tuning them, without making them, like, you know, complete classics. Now, of course, there are exceptions to the rule. That's what these top 10s are about. And certainly, if I wanted to, I could probably do a top 20 top 30 maybe of games for this year because there were some half decent games that just didn't make this list but this is what i deem to be the creme de la creme for 2016 so far there are some games that i have not managed to get to the table yet or i have not played whether it's because demand was so great i couldn't get a copy or you know other reasons like that but i'm just going to go over slight spoiler alert here are a few games that i have not yet played and therefore will not appear on this list terraforming mars i have not yet played this other than a demo at essen it impressed me to begin with but until i get a copy myself and play it properly it's not going to appear on a list like this mechs versus minions again didn't get a copy i don't know if i would like it or not but if i get a chance to play it we'll see i'll give a review or some impressions at a later date uh, great western trail i have it i have a copy of it after volunteering at an event recently but not being able to get it to the table, so of course, bear with me on that. Cry Havoc, I have it. I've had it since Essen, unfortunately, just haven't had the time to get it to the table and play it properly. Therefore, again, I can't put it on this list. I think that's probably it. Oh no, um, well, there's a few lesser known ones. I mean, there's Conan, I have a copy. Haven't had a chance to play it yet, but, you know, it could possibly make the list if it's any good. Uh, Star Wars Destiny, a similar reason for that. Other than that, though, I think the majority of the major releases this year I will have played, or certainly have tried. So that's enough for me to get a top 10 list done. Maybe I'll revisit this in a few months' time, but, you know, at the end of the day, you can't play everything from 2006. You can't play every game that's released in a whole year. It's just not possible unless you are literally the Dice Tower and have loads of people at your beck and call to do this on a daily basis for your job. Believe me, if I could do this as a job and get the same amount of income as I do with my normal day job, I wouldn't be doing my normal day job. I would be doing this and I would be playing every single game I could get my mitts on. So it's just the way it works for someone like me. Anyway, that's enough excuses. Let's get into it. Top 10. My number 10 is a game released by Bruno Kafala and Charles Chevalier. I hope I haven't mispronounced that too much. Basically, these two designers worked on a game called Abyss, which is one of my favourite games of all time. Well, this year they collaborated together again and brought out a very nice little filler game called Kanagawa. I think that's how you pronounce it. Kanagawa, Kanagawa, certainly something like that. This was published by Yellow and is a very nice little charming filler. It's basically based on an art print that the master Hukusai uh, did in Japan, Tokyo. And essentially what you are is that you are an artist. You are trying to create a print of artistry, you know, featuring animals and characters and buildings, etc. And the way you do this is a kind of semi-push-a-luck mechanism where cards will come out on this board and you'll decide whether you want to take a particular column of cards and put them either into your studio, which improves your ability to paint, or to put them actually in your print, which allows you to get points for the end of the game and acquire these special diploma tiles, which are effectively like objectives. It was a nice little filler. In fact, the review of this is coming out very soon, either tomorrow or on Monday. I will bring out a written review for this game. But I was quite impressed with how in literally only about 45 minutes, you could get a game that was nice and light, but had a decent amount of depth to keep you engaged and was just very charming. I would put this as a kind of younger brother of games like Takedo and Takinoko. It's just one of those games that just makes you 
feel nice and calm, it's relaxing, it looks incredibly beautiful, it's got great component quality as yellow tend to do, full of colour, full of nice art. This was a nice little, a nice little entry to the top 10 list for me. Kanagawa, number 10. Number nine was an unexpected game by a gentleman called Gislaine Masson, I think that's the name. Seriously, if I'm mispronouncing these names, I do apologise, I'm useless with this. This was done by Geek Attitude Games, and it's a little filler multiplayer game called Not Alone. Not Alone is a sci-fi-based card game where one of you plays the role of an alien menace on this planet, where a bunch of survivors have crash-landed. That's what all the other players are doing. And effectively, what is tra- what you're trying to do is you're trying to survive the, you, you know, you're trying to escape the alien for as long as possible until your rescue ship arrives, whereas the alien is trying to assimilate you into the planet. It's kind of weird. Don't think of it like a physical form. Think of it like an overarching menace, an entity or something that envelops the whole planet. It's kind of weird, but it's a cool little sci-fi premise. What makes this game enjoyable, though, is that it plays anywhere from two to seven, and ideally it should be played as a five, six, seven player game, but it doesn't matter, it's still enjoyable regardless. What you are doing though is that this is one of those styles of games where you're getting into your opponent's head, because you have a set number of locations, one, two, three, four, and five, and some others six to ten that you can acquire later. You start off with the hand of five cards, and you play one simultaneously with the rest of the group. The alien trend tries to figure out where everybody's gone in terms of the location, and places various tokens to do that. You flip over, and if you escape, you resolve the location's effects, which help you. If you get caught by the alien, you lose will, which helps him. And it's basically like that. It's that whole trying to escape the alien. Where does the alien think I'm going to go? Because when you play a card, that's it. You can't get it back unless you go to certain locations in order to get them back from your discard pile, or lose will, which accelerates the alien's ability to assimilate you but allows you to get cards back this one is just highly enjoyable because of for starters the artwork is beautiful it is some really nice artwork in here but it's that whole mentality of where does he think i'm gonna go hey he knows i can't go to one or three so i've only got two four and five he thinks i'm gonna go there but maybe i'll go here and trick him but do i want that ability but then i i'd rather get a subpar ability and not get caught maybe i can escape him and go and yes, I, you know, and it's just great when you can, you know, capture loads of people as the alien or when you just pull off that great maneuver of, haha, I outfoxed you, I got away from you. I remember one game of this, I managed to catch all four survivors at the same location at the same time in one round. It was such a glorious moment. It's like, yes, I, I know all of you. Soon you will all be mine. It was just great fun. But this one was a surprise hit. Now, it is highly skewed in favour of the alien, I will admit. I think the alien has a much easier time of winning than the survivors, but that's the challenge of it. You just give the alien to the player who's maybe least experienced so that they have an easier time to win, and if you just want a challenge, then be the survivors and enjoy the challenge. It doesn't have to be perfectly balanced, as long as you're happy with it beforehand. But you can wrap up this game in about 45 minutes as well. Nice short filler, but unexpected little gem for this year. Not alone, my number nine. Okay, we're going to move away from small little tiny filler card games and move on to giant monstrosity Euro games. This was the biggest release that Uwe Rosenberg released this year, and oh my god, is it a beast. This box is huge. It takes up half of one of my Kallax box shelves. But this one is Feast for Odin. Feast for Odin is another resource management game where you're building up your sort of Viking civilization over time, but the main game it borrows from is his original two-player game, Patchwork, where you had to put pieces on a board in front of you, and they were sort of like Tetris-shaped, you had to piece them together and in order to complete objectives and get points. Well, this is similar, except it takes it from a Euro perspective. You've got something like... I've forgotten the number, I think it's something like 60 action spaces to choose from, maybe 40, but certainly a ton of action spaces that you can pick from is worker placement. It is very overwhelming to a lot of people, but if you take the time to learn it, you'll realise that a lot of the action spaces are similar to each other, so you just need to understand how the game works rather than try and teach every single action space. But if you can get past that initial learning curve, 
it is still highly enjoyable. There's so much choice for how you go about, you know, improving your board state, how you, whether you're going to go on raids or you're just going to, you know, gather animals and breed them. Are you going to just be a massive food hogger? You know, you're going to store food for later. It's all sorts of ways you can play this game. And I don't know how many times I will get to play this game before I run out of potential strategic ideas. It even borrows the Agricola mechanic where you have occupations that you can play, which give you special bonuses for actions and can in some ways dictate the strategy you want to go for. There's a ton of variety in this game and it is a brain burner. Now, I'm certainly going to give a caveat here. If you're not used to heavy games, heavy Euro games, don't do this one, okay? It is a heavy Euro game, full stop. Anybody who classes this as less than heavy, I think needs their head examined, because seriously, there's a lot to do in this game, and there is a lot to think about. But you've got all these cool components, you've got all these cool tiles, the artwork is still nice and really cool as well. It's basically, if you're a Euro fan and you like Uri Rosenberg's games, you owe it to yourself to try this one out. I do wish maybe it had a little bit more of a stronger theme. It certainly doesn't bring out the theme as much as some of his other titles because of the whole patchwork thing, but it's still good fun and certainly worth the price tag in components alone. That is A Feast for Odin, my number eight. My number seven, you could argue, is just an expansion, but technically it's a standalone game, and even though it's part of a franchise that will probably never die at this point, it's still standalone and still worthy to be on this list. Legendary has done some very good quality card games for deck builders, and the Encounter series has also been a solid hit for me. Aliens was possibly my favourite of the entire line, Predator was a good supplement to that, but and wasn't the biggest fan of Big Trouble in Little China, I'll admit, but Firefly, Legendary Firefly, was one that did hit home with me. Now, I do wish the artwork was a lot better, because that is the one glaring issue with this game. The artwork is beyond appalling. There are some gems in there, but generally, oh my god, sack whoever you have doing this art in your legendary games people because seriously it's not working and you have had lots of gamers tell you this so seriously find better artists sorry if it's a little insulting but come on you know people are telling you this you need decent art anyway rant over the actual game itself is still really solid it's based on the similar premise to how the Aliens and Predator one worked where you have the spaces at the top where cards come out of this deck and move across until they hit you in a, like a combat zone. But with Firefly, you get to control the characters from the oh-so-classic and oh-so-missed TV show and they all have special abilities which trigger off these talent cards that go into your deck. You've also got loads of different scenarios that you can play where you basically play through the episodes of the series and you put any three together and you play them in combination. Now you can basically go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and have like the proper ones as suggested in the book, but you could mix and match to your heart's content. Do you want to start off with the Serenity pilot and then move straight on to Jane Town and then maybe on to the Bounty Under episode, the final one? Or do you want to do nothing but the the episodes where that uh oh, oh my god, Rainvar, I can't remember her name. The the girl who yeah, the girl who tricks Malcolm Reynolds all the time. Um, oh, I don't know. She's basically that spy character. She appears in two episodes and keeps, you know, screwing over Malcolm. But, you know, all of you Firefly fans can instantly tell me who I'm talking about. I've just completely brain on that one. But generally, all the episodes are very thematic. Whatever happened in the episode triggers through these scenarios, particularly how they interact with the characters. Because you don't just simply pick... You know, even if you're playing solo, you don't just pick one character and that's it. You have the main characters as per the ones that are being controlled, and then you have the supporting characters, which which dictate what goes into the player decks for cards to buy. That's a neat little twist, because now it's like, well, I really want to control Kaylee, but then I won't get any of Kaylee's cards into a deck. I just have Kaylee the Avatar, which is fine by me, because Kaylee is hard. Sorry, love Kaylee to this. But, you know, that's the way it works. It's a very cool thematic deck builder. It's not as good as Legendary Aliens, but it's certainly... I'd probably say it's possibly better than Predator. 
I think that the story and the theme is brought out really well in this. It's still a good challenge. I like how you can be all your favourite characters. It does pretty good justice to the Firefly universe. I just wish the artwork was a bit better. Still, solid gameplay, and despite my slight brain malfunctions there trying to remember stuff about it, it's still classic and still belongs at my number seven. Before I go on to my number six, I just had to check Saffron. That was the name I was thinking of. Saffron, Mrs. Reynolds, that character. Yeah, you could play her episode. Anyway, that's enough. I'm just recovering from that brain fart a minute ago. My number six is, I didn't think this would make my top ten when I heard about it. I thought, okay, it looks interesting, but it's just going to be some harmless little game for two to four players. It's done by Cosmos, you know. Will it be that good? Will it be, you know, just another sort of cube-pushing game? But wow, I was really surprised by how good this actually is. And that's Imhotep. Not to be confused entirely with dodgy Imhotep from those horrible mummy films. Imhotep is this really cool little game where players are builders in Egypt who want to be like the best known architect there. And over so many rounds, you have these these cubes that you load onto boats. And the cubes are basically different building materials. You just take control of one. You have these boats where they have so much space and you can place your materials on these boats and then sail them to various places in Egypt in order to build it. So you've got the pyramids, you've got obelisks, you've got the temples, etc. Or you can go to the market and pick up these cards that give you special powers or endgame bonus points. Now, this sounds very simple, and it is generally quite simple. All you're doing is procuring new stones, loading them onto a boat, and then taking them to the monuments or playing action cards. Now, that may sound easy, but the other players are constantly getting in the way because you're sharing these boats. So they are basically sharing the spaces on there and depending on which order you place them on may influence how many points you get because they go, they come off in a certain order as well. But the best thing on top of that is that you don't have to have the majority of stones in a boat to sail it. You could happily take a boat that you have no stones in whatsoever and sail it to a place where they don't want to go. So you can constantly thwart other players with this. This was a nominee for the Spiel Diaris this year, and to be fair, considering what won it, I think I'm actually... I would go as far as to say I think this game should have won the Spiel Diaris. I think it is a solid 2-4 to four player game by Cosmos that's simple to learn, but has a good amount of tactics good amount of strategy and just that nice little element of take that and you know you know thwarting other people's plans you know because it's not just a case of get your stones where you want them to go you also want to deny your opponents as much points as possible i did this in the first game i played and basically focused on end game goal objectives whilst thwarting other players and i won by a single point in that game since then, other games have been a mix of wins and losses, but oh, I must admit, I was really surprised by how good Imhotep actually turned out to be, so much so that I think I might have to get this one for my collection, because it really did just take a simple concept, give you these giant cubes, so yes, you are pushing cubes, but at least they're nice big boulders, and just gave you this nice little simple game for two to four players that works at all player counts, best with four, but still works with less, and can be done in a short space of time. I mean, what, 45 minutes? An hour tops, but probably about 45 minutes? Great little game. Imhotep by Cosmos, number six. My number five has been one of my favourite games of the year since nearly the start of the year. I believe the designer's name is pronounced Francois Gandon. I'm not sure, French name, but... Essentially, this is a city-building game released by Days of Wonder early as early on as February of this year. I like city-building games in general, but I find that there aren't many that capture a good theme for city-building or they make them too complicated to basically deal with. Quadropolis is my city-building game of choice for this year. Now, granted, it doesn't have the biggest theme stapled onto it. It's not like, you know, all the buildings act exactly as they would, but they do sort of fit. But mainly, it's a slightly abstracted city-building game. The great thing about this one is just how beautiful it looks, how well-designed it is, and how easy it is to teach and play. This one has two modes in it, Classic and Expert. If you're a gamer and you want a bit of extra, you know, 
bit of extra tactics and strategy thrown in and some more buildings you basically play expert mode but if you're teaching new gamers this is about as perfect a gateway level game as you can get if you stick to classic mode very simple and very quick you can wrap this game up in 30 minutes with a couple of players you could wrap it up in an hour or less even on expert mode with four players it's nice and short nice and quick but the tiles are beautiful it's simple in terms of its rules it's a bit like playing targi where you have to place your architects around this board where all the tiles are and depending on where you place uh, the architects you have this other pawn that goes on there that blocks other players from placing their architects in certain ways. A bit like how the Outer Rim works in Targi, but if you've not played that game, don't worry. Basically, where you place can dictate where opponents can't go. So you've got that element of screwage there. But it can be taught in pretty much 10 minutes flat. It can be played in 30 to 60 minutes. It's very elegant, very smooth. The insert is one of the best inserts I've seen for a board game lately where you can wrap this game up and pack it away and set it up in next to no time at all. Beautiful production. Days of Wonder hits it out of the park with these gateway level games and Quadropolis is one that's going to sit in my collection for a long time. Quadropolis number five. Okay, these last four did not take long for me to make this list. I mean, I pretty much I'd say the top five were easy to do and then the other five were a bit harder. But yeah, in terms of ranking these top five, it was pretty simple to come up with these. And we're now, for the most part, getting into heavy thematic territory now. After all, I do like thematic games, therefore they're going to be a big hit with me. And we're starting off with technically a reprint, but it's such a significant reprint that it still warrants coming out on this list and that is the mansions of madness second edition from fantasy flight this one i played the original mansions of madness and i thought it was okay but it was far too clunky it was far too fiddly and the game could be broken rather easily i also didn't feel that you had a lot of exploration in it because there was such a stringent timer on the game that you really just couldn't go out and explore Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition introduces an app that takes care of all that clunky bookkeeping, introduces a soundtrack, introduces thematic atmosphere, and basically took a game that was probably falling off people's radars and not worthy of being played again and made it excellent. This one is a solid co-op experience for anybody who liked the original Mansions of Madness or is just a fan of the Arkham Horror franchise in general. This one has the app handle, the storytelling, and the map. You, you've got like map tiles on the board, but the app handles where you place certain things, you know, story elements and where monsters appear and it handles the combat for you and gives you like detailed descriptions of what you're doing in a combat situation. Like, you know, I'm attacking with a heavy-handed weapon and it will detail what happened? You could almost picture it like it was happening in a movie. The atmosphere it creates is fantastic with the soundtrack in the background. The monster miniatures are really cool, even though the bases they're on are a little bit annoying. You have to put these uh, tiles inside the base for their stats, and they're a little bit fiddly. But once you get past that small minor quibble, it's, it's great fun. It is a bit long. I will give it that. It lies wholeheartedly on the side of the box about how long each scenario takes. This is one of those games that you might find you'll probably have to pause it and then come back to it, but it's an app. You can save your game, you can leave it on the table, easily done. Or you can just make it an event game. But this is really cool co-op game, really thematic, really nice addition, and this is basically an example, yet again, of why I want apps in board games. Seriously, apps can really improve a board game. We've got Portal releasing first Martians next year that's going to introduce an app. XCOM still one of my favorite games. It introduces an app. Seriously, use the technology we have. It's not going to replace your beloved board game. Just get apps in board games. Oy. Ooh, I'm on a ranting mood today. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's this tea. Anyway, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. Great co-op. Brilliant game. Number four. Number three, we are continuing the whole Arkham Horror theme. Yes, Arkham Horror is one of my favorite themes that has come into board games. And even though the whole Cthulhu thing has been somewhat done to death, it is probably my favorite horror story franchise of all time. Well, I suppose, well, uh, maybe Alien would be my favorite. I do like the Alien franchise as well, but I think the Arkham Horror stuff is interesting. Granted, I haven't had time to read things like all the novels and the short stories, 
but I am tempted to get that short story compendium that's coming out, uh, The Investigators or whatever. I think I might grab a copy of that because that looks really cool and interesting. Bit expensive, but we'll see. Anyway, this is an LCG which has similarities to the Lord of the Rings card game, but when I get round to doing a review of this one, you will see where the changes are. Anyway, this is the Arkham Horror card game, the LCG. And this one came out around Essen time. I was quite psyched about this because I thought, hmm, Lord of the Rings is one of my favourite games of all time. It's been in my top 10 consistently, and it's a really cool LCG. Mainly because I love the fact it's co-op. I can play it solo, or if I want to, I can play it with others who own the game. Unfortunately, it has pretty much been a solo experience. Unfortunately, there's not many players for Lord of the Rings in my area. Uh, maybe I should go live in America, I don't know. But anyway, and... I've really enjoyed it. So to have another co-op card game based on Arkham Horror was pretty much a surefire hit with me. And it so far has been. Yes, we only have a core set to go by, you know, but you know Fantasy Flight, they're going to be chucking out these expansions willy-nilly. Although, Fantasy Flight, can you tone it down just a little bit? Maybe slow down a tad? It's difficult to keep up. Anyway, this one is very thematic, though, for a card game. Whether you play it solo or with other players... Each scenario tells a story in rich, dripping theme. You are basically trying to get through the scenario and the story quicker than the deck itself, like the enemy deck, gets through it itself. It's almost like a book, two sides of a book, and the left page is the enemy and the right page is yourself, and you're trying to accelerate your side of the story more than theirs. And you'll fight against monsters, you'll investigate locations which are represented by the cards, you've got characters, you actually move around in the location so there's a spatial element you can create decks that are designed to go kill aliens you can make just ones that are investigating you don't have to be a combat munchkin to win this game you can do it by other means and that's one thing i do like because i do find some games just focus so much on if you can't kill an alien you're kind of screwed this one so far has managed to avoid that issue at least for the most part but i really enjoyed this this is a very cool card game now, do I enjoy it more than Lord of the Rings LCG? So far, no, but then I've only got a core set to go on, so let's see how it builds up over time. So far, I've got both these games, and I'm going to continue both these games. But I think if you've got any likeness for the Lord of the Rings LCG, you will love this, providing you are interested in the Arkham Horror theme. If you have not tried either, then both games are solid, but maybe you want to jump into the Arkham Horror one mainly just because it's just started and it's an easier entry point, whereas Lord of the Rings has been going on for quite some time. Really love it though, I can't wait for more stuff to come out of this and to expand the sort of deck building aspect, but I like how the mechanics work, I like the whole drawing tiles out of a bag when you're doing skill tests, and the fact that the cards in your deck are not just whatever the card does, but also what you know, skill symbols are on it will dictate how well you do other tests. So you're going to think, do I want to keep this card for what it is or do I discard it now and hope I pass this test? Really cool, really atmospheric again. Arkham Horror, the LCG, great potential to be a surefire hit. But for now, it's my number three. My number two, we're heading away from the Arkham Horror franchise now, but we're still in heavy thematic territory. And now, we're into Star Wars. Star Wars is a great franchise, as by many people will agree. I really like Star Wars. I, you know, enjoy all the films. I like the PC games that have come out with it. I even like some of the miniature games that have come out with it, even though I don't personally collect them. This one, though, I was a little bit hesitant on at first, because I thought... This is going to be a game that takes something like two to three hours to play, and it's solely for two players. I don't know if I'm going to be able to play this often, and I have to admit, I do think this is going to be one that gets brought out fairly rarely because of just trying to find one other person who's free for two to three hours to play it. But, oh my god, if you get to play this game, it is solid, and that is Star Wars Rebellion. Star Wars Rebellion, yes, it can be played with four, but all you're doing is sharing the resources, and that's pointless. What this is really is a two-player game. The Empire versus the Resistance. Well, Empire versus the Rebellion, technically. I'm getting my uh, Star Wars films mixed up. And with this, it's a full-on strategy combat game. You have a map of all the different planets in space, and basically, each of you is playing a slightly different game to the opposing player. You have different goals. 
the Empire is trying to find the Rebel base and destroy it, and the Rebels are trying to gain influence over the various sectors in order to overpower the Empire. Whoever achieves this first is the winner. Now, the way that you do this is you build various ships and models, and there's miniatures for all things like Star Destroyers and Krillin Corvettes and even a Death Star miniature, which is just awesome. You can go around and blow up planets. But this is basically all the original trilogy of Star Wars films in a board game. Because you have all these mission cards that you play, which are things like capture operatives or, you know, infiltrate um, empire establishments, that kind of thing. And you've got all these leaders that influence how well you can do them. So you've got all the classics like Leia and Luke and Darth and Tarkin and the Emperor and etc. And you can just replay story elements out of Star Wars in this board game in a different way, though. Like... In the films, it was, well, spoiler alert, if you've never watched a Star Wars film ever, you know, you've got Han Solo being frozen in carbonite. Now, in this one, you have the ability to do that, but you might do it to someone else. You might have already captured, uh, you know, Luke at some point and then stuck him in carbonite. You know, that'll teach you. And you can just replay the films in your own manner with this. It takes a while, and the rules themselves are not actually that complex. That's what shocked me more. I thought this was going to be such a complicated game to learn, but it's not. The rules themselves don't take that long to get into your head. It's just the fact that the game does go on for a lot of rounds, and you've obviously got the strategic aspect of, what do I do now? Where is that rebel base hiding? Because the Empire is playing a deduction game, and the Rebellion is playing a survival game. So asymmetrical, love it. Star Wars theme, love it. Highly thematic, love it. Great little miniatures for all the ships and the uh, troops, love it. Mission cards, love it. Getting into your opponent's head for where they think you're going to send leaders to and what missions you're going to do, love it. It's got so much going for it that I really adore. Now, I I have to admit, I'm not going to be able to get this played as often as I would like just because it's a long two-player-only game. But, whoo, if I get a chance to play it, then I will gladly step up to the plate and play this because it is just that solid a game. Possibly the best Star Wars game that has come out to date. I kid you not. So, Star Wars Rebellion, easily my number two of the year. And so, my number one for the year is actually a Euro game. Not, it, you know, it's still pretty thematic, but it is a Euro game. And you'd think that with Star Wars Rebellion and Arkham Horror, I'd be putting one of those on the top. And to be fair, I was very close to putting one of them at the top, but... When all things considered, yes, most people have seen this coming, and yes, for most people it is their game of the year, but I have to agree, Scythe was fantastic. This allows me to do what I want, almost sandbox style, in a highly thematic, sort of, well, I say highly thematic, the, the universe it's based on is a very cool theme, with this like 1920s style farming mixed with mechs. It just looks really cool, the artwork is absolutely brilliant with this. But the idea is that you can, you know, decide what you want to do. Do I want to just harvest resources for the whole game? Do I want to build my mechs and start stomping on other players? Do I want to explore the map and try out these new encounters that I can find? And, you know, whatever you want to do. And the action selection with your boards is really cool. How you can't do the same thing twice, usually. And you have to sort of be efficient. with. It's an engine building game at the end of the day, but... It's cool how the different factions work differently. They've got different abilities and bonuses. So, and also not just the factions, but the boards you have to do your actions are different as well for every player. So they're laid out differently with a top and bottom action that differs across the board. So everyone is unique. It's brilliant components. Granted, yes, maybe it's slightly skewed by the fact that I have the collector's edition. So I have the realistic resources as well as the metal coins, but oh, Every time this game has been played, I have enjoyed my time with this. I don't necessarily want to play it with five players as often as that, and certainly now the expansion's out, there is no way I am playing this with six or seven players. I think you'd have to be mental to try it. But with three or four players, Scythe is fantastic. Even with five, it's pretty good. You just have to make certain there's no analysis paralysis in the group, otherwise you'll be there for a while. But... Oh yes, I really enjoy this one. It's a huge game, there's a ton in that box, but it sits on my shelf and it's going to sit there for a long time because I've just really enjoyed the the flexibility in a Euro game. You know, introduce a bit of theme and a bit of variety in your Euro games 
and I'll latch onto them. Don't just be dry and horrible and bland. You know, put a good universe in there. Put some good artwork. Put some good components. Make what you do make sense. And give me a choice of what to do in the game. And it will work. Now, of course, you know, the hype is something that you can never live up to. So the amount of hype that Scythe had is never going to be justified because people hype this game up to crazy levels. And I'm not saying it's a completely perfect game, but it's one of my few games that I have given a 10 rating to. And I must admit, I need to start looking through my list and maybe giving a few more 10s out because I think maybe I'm a bit too stringent with the 10s. But, oh yes, this is a great game and easily my number one of 2016. So that's it for this episode. There were some honourable mentions I could mention. There was Mystic Veil, there was the Networks, Automobiles, Crisis, Android Mainframe. There was lots of other games that I really enjoyed this year but just couldn't make a top 10. I could probably easily do a 20, possibly a 30. You know, like I said, this year wasn't my absolute favourite for games. And there may be games I play in the next few weeks that will actually change this list. I mentioned I haven't played Terraforming Mars or Cry Havoc yet to a great deal. They look solid to, you know, make this list if they promise to deliver what I hope they do. And other ones, what have I also got? I mean, Great Western Trail, I don't know if I'll like that or not, but the hype has been pretty good, so we'll see. I've got Doom the Board Game recently, that's technically 2016, and, well, that looks like good fun as well. So who knows? Maybe some of those 6 to 10 choices will get pushed off the list in favour of those. But for now, as of the 7th of January 2017, these are my top 10 for 2016. I look forward to trying the other releases of 2016 that I haven't done yet, and certainly I'm excited to see what 2017 brings to the table. So that's it for another episode. I'm going to take a rest, I think. I think I'm owed that. I've got plenty more to do today as well as this podcast, and it's time to crack on. Maybe have a tinker with some of that video equipment that I said about earlier. So take care, enjoy yourselves, and remember, it's only a game. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more about The Broken Meeple, there are various sources for you to choose from. You can check out the written review blog at brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. You can find me on Facebook at The Broken Meeple. You can find me also on Twitter at The Broken Meeple. If you live anywhere near Portsmouth, Hampshire, you can come to one of our board gaming clubs. Search for Portsmouth on board on meetup.com or Facebook and check out our pages. Also, check out my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thebrokenmeeple and pledge anything you can to help me get back into video and improve this experience for you. Thanks for listening, take care, enjoy playing games, and from me and everyone else at the Dice Tower, have fun gaming. You're listening to the Dice Tower Network. If you like this show, you might like the Secret Cabal Gaming Podcast or Board Gamers Anonymous. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com.